How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Eucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. US Q3 2023. Matthew Trueblood, writer for Baseball Prospectus. The key to understanding the game is sabermetrics. The field was developed by statistician Bill James. I made baseball as much fun as doing your taxes. And author of the Penning Bull Newsletter. It's about getting things down to one number. Using the stats the way we read them, we'll find value in players that nobody else can see. It's Matthew Trueblood with Matt Spiegel on Hit and Run. Man, that's some hardcore nerd painting by the production staff here at Hit and Run. And I don't know if Matthew Trueblood is offended by it. I hope not, for God's sakes. What's up, Matt? How are you? I cannot afford to be offended by it. I am a hardcore nerd. <laughs> you know, the, the embracing of, of, of our inner nerddoms or outer nerddoms or overall nerddoms has um, not just become in vogue in baseball, it's become the norm in baseball. I declared the nerds the winners when the Tampa Bay Rays put a Princeton grad, a 28-year-old, in a coaching uniform this year. He's now a, a Jonathan. I forget what his last name is. But he is on the coaching staff. He is um, a, a front office analytics guy who is now part of the staff. So I, congratulations, right? Yeah, I'll take it. I don't know if I'm allowed to accept on behalf of all nerds, but <laughs> I think you are. I think you can speak for the entire uh, nerd diaspora, if that is even a thing. Um, I've always enjoyed reading you at Baseball Prospectus and Penning Bull. I am a recent subscriber to Penning Bull, and you have uh, Chicago roots as well. So um, in, in talking with you on the Twitters, we realized you'd be in town. So I'm pleased to have you here. Uh, 670 the score is where you are. It's hit and run. I want to talk overall Cubs with you for starters, um, Matt, because you've written a lot about their overall uh, pitching infrastructure. You've had some thoughts. You wrote, you did a deep dive last year on it. Um, and I know that, that folks bring it up uh, a lot. So, and and I'm, I'm interested in that on a, on, a, on a number of levels. But let's start here. Right now, where the Cubs stand in terms of overall talent, overall health of organization, uh, the depth of the farm system, there, you know, I, I guess you'd, you'd call it a full on organizational ranking in terms of like how healthy they are, how much chance they have to win, say, in the next two, three years, that kind of thing. Who is ahead of them? Certainly more teams than it was a few years ago. Um, and I think this is something, you know, I do talk about this a lot on Twitter, and there's pushback just because it sounds like maybe I'm saying that Theo Epstein or Jed Hoyer are not smart, not innovating, not working hard. None of that is true. But what you have to understand is since 2015, when StatCast came into being and started governing a lot of the decisions and evaluations and sort of evolution of the game of baseball, we've seen this incredible acceleration in the pace of change in the sport. And unfortunately, that's kind of not timed up well with the Cubs becoming a really successful and sort of ossified team in terms of roster, in terms of front office. They have been kind of a victim of timing and a victim of their own success where they just haven't been able to pivot to some of the things that are radically changing the game 
as quickly as other teams have been. Hmm, that's interesting. So what is radically changing the game? I think about what the Astros are doing with their pitchers. Am I, am I on point with that? Expound, if, if so. Let me put it this way. There are two pitches that we, if we've, as baseball nerds, have been paying close attention. We know that the two pitches that define the game in this year and the last couple. Let me guess, four-seam fastball and curveball? Or no. seamer and slider. Slider. I saw you t- talking yeah. about the slider revolution. So all right, it, the reason I thought curveball is because, uh, it, you know, when the Dodgers started dominating the Cubs and then everybody started following that, it was this similar tunnel of the high fastball for these launch angle hitters and then a curve that starts in the same spot and then drops. Is the slider, though, being used in that same tunnel now? Yeah, the slider is the pitch that has grown most in usage over the last few years, mostly at the expense of sinkers, which play to batters a lot of the times just kind of like flat fastballs. Uh, one of the changes that's happened in the shape of the slider sort of league-wide, not with every pitcher, of course, but in general, teams are engineering more depth on pitcher sliders. So they depth, can kind of, depth is what? A vertical drop? Yeah, exactly. And so it's sort of taking the place of the curveball, which did at first when we sort of identified this as a key point, it made sense to have the curve because it could come out of the same tunnel and then sort of fall off the table from the four-seamer that rode high in the zone. But now, as teams are able to get more vertical depth on sliders, just working with pitch design and the things that you hear us nerds always yammering about, uh, that's given teams an opportunity to have pitchers pair the fastball with a slider that they're throwing at basically the same arm speed and a much closer velocity, hmm. and it's still falling off the table. So, but because the arm speed is the same and the velocity is very similar, it's even more difficult to pick up and distinguish from each other. That's right. And, and so there's four seamers at the top of the zone specifically, and then the slider. And I brought numbers here. Going by... Four-seamers at the top of the zone, the Cubs are 18th in expected weighted on-base percentage for, from their hitters against that pitch. Okay, so the Cubs hitters are 18th out of 30 teams in terms of their success rate against the four-seam fastball, which is one of the two pitches that is dominating the game. And they're 18th against sliders. Huh. And that's bad enough news. I mean, this is a problem we've known about since they were wiped out in the 2017 NLCS by the Dodgers throwing high fastballs and... They mixed some curves in, but basically high fastball, high fastball, high fastball, breaking ball. Mm-hmm. The Cubs have been struggling with that for two years, but they haven't made an adjustment. They're still a below-average team against those two pitches. All right, so this is when Theo talks about the broken offense, and when we've been trying to dissect, well, what does that mean? Too many home run or bust guys, people looking at those kind of numbers. What we should be looking at, and what a lot of front officers are looking at, is the way that certain swing planes do against certain pitch designs. Because if you are a front office of the Astros or the Dodgers or whatever, you can uh, you know how to attack a team if they all are similar in terms of their weakness against that kind of style. That's right. And so that's part of why you're seeing the Cubs struggle to put together consistent offense in this day and age. You can have a team of very talented hitters that you don't want to get rid of or give up on, uh-huh. and that's who they have. But as long as they're still struggling against those two pitches that are defining the modern game, you're not going to put up five runs night in, night out the way that they want to. So uh, as they talk about trying to fix it, really, you have to go out and get guys who are better at it, don't you? That's the position I take. And and I think it's it's controversial and it's difficult because they've invested so much into developing this core of hitters. You know, obviously Rizzo and Bryant and Javi Baez, 
but also Kyle Schwarber and Albert Almora and Ian Happ and Wilson Contreras. They've brought these guys along. They believe in the talent, and the talent is obvious when they're going well. So they don't want to just send them out the door. But at a certain point, whether it's a failure of coaching, a failure of analytical information, or if it's just these guys maybe fit really well into 2015, 2016, even the 2017 game, but Hmm. it's changed so much, you might have to move on. Maybe it's from one of those guys, or maybe it's from one of the other sort of really messy parts of the lineup. But you've got to go out and proactively add a player who has demonstrated the ability to thrive in this very new kind of baseball. All right, this makes a lot of sense. I know it's uh, a lot of numbers and maybe some concepts that some of our listeners here at 670 The Score, some are familiar with and some are not. But think about how it dovetails with what the narrative has been here in town, and it just makes all the sense in the world. So when they're talking about we have to change, we have to value production over talent, it's kind of saying, all right, maybe, like the last point you made, some of these guys were right for then, but we can't fix them. But at the same time, it's three hitting coaches in three years. It's trying to teach the nuanced message of situational hitting and believing that some guys can do it. Because the thing is, some guys can. I always reference Anthony Rizzo. Obviously, he's got the, the A swing for his first two strikes. Then he goes to the B hack, yep. and he becomes a guy who can get on top of stuff like that and hit it the opposite way. Asking everybody to be that guy, as a lot of lineups are around baseball, and certainly the Cubs, is incredibly difficult. How many guys are that talented in baseball to do what Rizzo does? That's a good question, and I don't know if we know the answer. I know the answer is a bigger number than we used to think. Uh-huh. And you can go back to, you know, we talk about the analytics revolution, but there's also this player development revolution happening, right, where we're getting better and better at teaching players to be good at some of these things that maybe they weren't before. Um, and you don't have to look very far. Folks who were watching last night when Christian Yelich guessed fastball in an O one count and just jumped on it and took it out to left center field. Yeah. That's because he sat on that pitch. It's it was a high spin fastball at the top of the strike zone. Craig Kimbrell didn't mess up. Right. He, he was only ninety five and not yeah. ninety eight, ninety nine because of his own decay, but spot wise it was fine. Yeah, he wanted to be in and he got it a little out. But the point is that Yelich has developed to this point where he is always sitting on a pitch. And if he doesn't get his pitch, he has ways to still get the barrel to the ball, maybe. But if he does get his pitch, you're absolutely dead. Between the juiced ball and the way that he has adjusted his swing, even if you execute, he can beat you. And I think that is the thing that the Cubs have not quite been able to get to. And it could be because of all that coaching turnover. But for whatever reason, they're not, they haven't been able to bring along these very talented hitters to beat opposing pitchers even when they execute what they want to do. It's, it's interesting stuff um, because what's in there also is Yelich's mental capacity to learn it, to realize that you have to be a guy who sits on a certain pitch, to change the way you go about it, and then also your athletic ability to adjust. And as you say, when you don't get your pitch, still fight it off so you can foul off a ball and keep your at-bat alive or do something else with the pitch or not swing at it. There's a lot of different skill sets that are getting involved there. Yeah, and this is something that goes back, as so many things about hitting do, to Ted Williams, especially when the slider came into the game, he felt like that changed everything. Because when he was trying to guess between fastball and curveball, he felt really successful and he felt like he had, you know, C1 hang two, right? You can leave yourself a little something for the breaking ball but still be sitting on a fastball. Once the slider came along, he felt like, I can't do anything but pound that pitch into the ground unless I am sitting on it. 
And so it's been increasingly a guess, sit, and try and attack kind of game as the slider comes more and more into vogue in so, the majors. So, so his, his, his uh, adjustment was to sit on the slider and adjust to the fastball if it came? Yeah, or, you know, and even he would admit, sometimes you're just going to get beat by the fastball if you do that. And it, for many of the decades between Ted Williams and today, there's been a conventional wisdom that you just sit fastball because anything, if you sit anything else, you're going to get beaten by the heat. Hmm. Uh, but hitters are learning now, and yeah, which is one great example, that you're just not going to see fastballs often enough that you can always be sitting on that pitch. You have to guess along. You have to think intelligently and you have to be ready and say if I get something hard away here I'm taking it to the opposite field otherwise I'm looking to turn lift and drive the ball out to my pole field this is the uh the kind of league-wide trends that fascinate me overall about the game because it's like this this collective hive mind of 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 hitters and and front offices and now computers and data and all of that and it makes sense that you know Everything was sinker and and slider and splitter for a while, and then launch angle comes along. It's like, well, I'm just going to hit these high and see what I can do. And then to counter launch angle, now we have the high fastball and we have the slider or the curve, but lately even more the slider. You brought in the numbers about where the Cubs ranked offensively against those pitches. Do we know how they do pitching-wise in terms of how much they throw those pitches or how effective they are throwing those pitches? Yeah, we can boil this one down even more because you don't have to look at success rate. Uh, You can just look at how often do the Cubs throw high fastballs, high four-seam fastballs, top of the zone and and above. Mm Mm-hmm. There's only one team in the major leagues that throws fewer of them this year, the Seattle Mariners. <laughs> and so hold on, they're 29th in terms of percentage of throwing the four-seam fastball. As a, as a collective staff, they're 29th of 30 in terms of throwing one of the two dominant pitches in baseball these days. And that's the relatively good news, because they're 30th in slider percentage, and it's by a lot. Wow. Let's think about that, folks. 29th and 30th, and 30th by a lot, in the percentage of which they throw the two most dominant pitches, the best way, that pairing of those two pitches, the best way to attack the most common prototype of hitter these days in Major League Baseball. And it's not entirely by accident. We shouldn't act like the Cubs aren't aware of these trends or are being stupid by doing things the way that they do. So what do they believe in? What, what, What do they still believe in that some others might not believe in quite as much? Here's what I think it boils down to. They started out saying, we're going to buy arms and build from within with bats. And that was a great idea. It's sort of the reverse of what had been conventional wisdom just a few years ago, but it's the smarter course. And they beat the market for a while by doing that. What it meant was a little bit of a trade-off. You're not going to be able to go out and just buy the best pitcher on the market over and over. Uh, You're going to have to start making some clever moves, find some guys that the market isn't valuing as highly as you do, Mm -hmm. especially as that offensive core starts to get more expensive, which it's already doing. But this keeps you from having a cohesion of the kind of arms and the kind of pitchers you're going after. Right, but it also it forces you sort of out of the market for the guys who are throwing lots of high spin fastballs and swing and miss sliders. Those guys are going to go for top dollar on the free agent market. But if you're targeting guys like Steve Ciszek, who's sinker slider, and it's a lot of sinkers and teams sort of shy away from that, especially without premium velocity, that was a pretty good signing for them. And they were able to do it because they value what he does more highly than other teams do. Mm -hmm. It's just that that's coming at an expense overall. 
All right, interesting. So the guys that they do have that throw four-seam fastball and breaking ball combo and to attack people like that, um, Darvish, but he throws everything, right? Chatwood, which is, uh, I mean, doesn't Chatwood fit that profile? Wasn't that part of what made him attractive on the free agent market? What's interesting about Chatwood is when he came in, we sort of all saw the stuff, saw the stat cast numbers, got excited and thought they're going to re-engineer him in this certain way. And the reason it didn't work, or one reason that it didn't work, is that it turns out Chatwood just isn't terribly comfortable throwing that high fastball or approaching things that way. Hmm. Um, and Darvish, it's true of Darvish to a certain extent, too. I think last year they tried to get him comfortable elevating that four-seamer consistently because he has a high-spin four-seamer. But it turns out he just locates a lot more consistently and is much more able to command his entire arsenal if he's focusing on keeping that four-seamer low-ish and you know he might elevate to the belly button but not to the letters or the shoulders Mm. Um, and I think he does that more effectively now that he's sort of settled in and gotten comfortable and it's the same story with Chatwood but they sort of had a year of just total lost you know a lost effort with both of them because they were trying to get them to do these very modern things they saw the ability within them to do it but neither one was entirely comfortable with the way they were going about it and then of course with Darvish you had the compounding factor of the physical issues and with Chatwood he got into some bad mechanical habits Hmm. so now that they're smoothing that out there's a little bit of those things in them but they're also a little more comfortable doing things in a way that doesn't perfectly match up with the modern uh, trends Mm -hmm. he's Matthew Trueblood from Baseball Prospectus listeners I hope you're uh, taking this in and enjoying it I hope you're realizing how this stuff conceptually is paralleling with a very frequent thought that I've been getting last yesterday and you know today and for a while, the game is passing Theo Epstein by. And I think that's very, way too simplistic, and you, you've told us why that is not a, something that you can just take at face value. But it, their choices, their in, intentional, thoughtful choices have gone against some ways that some other teams are going, and they might be wrong. This is part of what's fascinating about baseball is that the smartest guys in the world can sometimes get things wrong. Um, we got a lot to talk about here on Hit and Run. We have a Cubs lineup for you. Robel Garcia is hitting leadoff again. Uh, Wilson Contreras is your catcher, hitting second. Then Bryant Rizzo Baez. Hayward, six, Hap, seven. Kyle Schwarber back in the lineup against Zach Davies. And Jose Quintana is your starting pitcher. First pitch after one, pregame at 1235 here on The Score. Later on this hour, I'm going to throw my White Sox trade proposal at Matthew Trueblood, and I want his, uh, his, his perspective on whether it's conceivable, whether it's a good idea or not. A big White Sox uh, reshape um, trade idea that I have. But when we come back, let's talk about a little bit about pitch design and the guy who I think is, is the current genius of pitch design, and he's not a coach. We'll talk about that next on 670 The Score. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Welcome back in on 670 The Score. 
Uh, tickets are on sale now, by the way, for the Chicago Dogs, your premier minor league baseball team. Get in the game at the Chicago Dogs today with pregame autographs and $3 bottomless popcorn and soda on Family Sundays. Tickets at thechicagodogs.com. The Chicago Dogs baseball with everything. If you've got a kid, bring them to a Chicago Dogs game. I did a hit and run live there a few weeks ago. Matt Trueblood from Baseball Perspectives, who is my guest co-host today. And um, my, my seven-year-old absolutely had a blast, in large part because the mascot for the Chicago Dogs is a fluffy bottle of mustard named Squeeze. With a hat that is the squeeze top that comes off and you can put it on the kid. And that's fun in and of itself. But there's also, there's a villain mascot. Ketchup is the villain and he's wearing um, a trench coat. So it's a giant bottle of ketchup in a trench coat. And the Chicago Dogs people told me that ketchup is more popular than squeeze. Maybe because he's a villain or maybe because people just like catch up more on their dogs than yeah. they're willing to admit publicly. I don't know. But uh, that's a very fun time out there in Rosemont. Boy, um, it is hit and run. You know, it's funny. A texter just said, hey, how about Yvonne Nova and Blake Rutherford for Clint Frazier? We were just talking about Clint Frazier and Yvonne Nova. We will get to our big White Sox uh, trade proposal that, uh, that I had for you. Well, hell, we could do it now. Um, and then we can talk about pitch design, which I, I brought up earlier. Let's do the White Sox now. Let's talk about Yvonne uh, Nova. I mean, the pro scouting department, which I think is going to get a boost and an updating from Nick Hostetler who they've moved over from amateur scouting and will help them modernize, uh, right. which, which they do need. Um, and, and so there were some people, by the way, that looked at the Hostetler move as a demotion. I don't see it that way at all. No, no, yeah. At, at all, right? It, you, you don't either. Um, and and I'm, I'm told we shouldn't. So, but the pro scouting, boy, Irvin Santana was a disaster. Yvonne Nova looked really bad. But then lately, what is it, three in a row really good ones for Yvonne Nova? Do you think he has value out there on the deadline as we're a couple days away? It's going to be interesting to see. I would have said no chance on earth of just a month ago. But he's had good showings, and, you know, when he had a complete game shutout against the Marlins, that's one thing. That's the Marlins. They're a terrible offense. But he's shown really well against the Cubs. He's shown really well against the Twins just last night. And those are offenses that normally would just really punish not only pitchers of Nova's quality, but his style, too. Mm -hmm. So his ability to battle, uh, to really sort of work around trouble, um, I do think he'd be interesting to some team. Now, it's probably going to be one of those teams that is only in the hunt for one of the wild card spots and is really desperate in the rotation, and the prospect price would be really, really low, not even Clint Frazier. Um, But, you know, like the Phillies are a team that the back half of their rotation is a shambles. And they could use that boost just to stay afloat in the playoff race for a while. How about the Brewers, who have two or maybe three healthy starters as of right now? What do you mean the Brewers pitching staff's doing great? They've shut down the mighty Cubs offense the last two nights. Oh, boy, thanks for mentioning. Uh, but Julius Chassin on the DL. Uh, Woodruff is on the DL. Corbin Burns is, is rehabbing somewhere. Um, and then Gio Gonzalez left with a minor injury the other night. So, yeah, I mean, they're doing what, what, what they've been doing the past couple of nights, but they could use another starting pitcher, couldn't they? They absolutely could. And they're a team that will be comfortable patching it together the way we've seen them do and the way they got used to doing down the stretch last year um, because their front office just thinks of things that way, and they'd rather throw volume at the problem than really overpay for a starter. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, we've seen reports from Ken Rosenthal that they're getting creative, looking to add 
a starter with team control attached to him. And, yeah, that would transform their roster in a certain way and, and make them a much more um, scary team come the playoffs if they get that. If, if they got a good starter with team control. That's right. Have, they have farm system to do it. They don't have a very good farm system it, at this point. Have, have they but, used most of it? Keston Hira is here, and boy, is he good, by the way. He's, right. he's really fun to watch. Do they not have, not have a lot left behind him? They don't have top-end pieces, and so that's why you're hearing rumors about them getting creative. Rosenthal wrote in his column this morning that they're entertaining trading Mike Moustakis or Yasmani Grandal. Hmm. I think that'd be a mistake for them on either score, but especially Grandal. But if they want to sort of use some of the guys who have had pop-up years in their system, uh, some of the ones who they've sort of found and made something out of when they didn't come in with a lot of prospect pedigree, they still have enough to go and get someone fairly interesting if they are willing to be creative, flexible. The bottom of the hour is brought to you by Northwestern Football. Join Coach Fitz and the Big Ten West Division champions at Ryan Field this fall when they host Ohio State, Iowa, and more. Season and single game tickets are on sale now at nusports.com. We are broadcasting live from the Hyundai Score Studios. Visit your local Hyundai dealer and the all-new Hyundai Palisade. Okay, so I have been openly daydreaming about the perfect type of trade to maximize the Chicago White Sox contending window. It is a little bit of selling. It's a little buying facilitated by a bundle um, and bundling their assets, players, etc. I don't know if this package is appetizing enough to the Arizona Diamondbacks, but I want to go get Zach Greinke. Zach Greinke has three years remaining on his deal. Um, it was a $206 million contract. He is set to make $32 million in each of the next two seasons. Um, the Diamondbacks are openly shopping him. I don't know how much money they are looking to pick up uh, of it or willing to pick up, but the White Sox have money. They tried to give Manny Machado $250 million of it last year. If they are willing to eat and take on the entirety of Zach Greinke's money, might the Diamondbacks be willing to accept a package that the White Sox could offer? And, and by that, I'm saying, you know, obviously a couple of prospects – and I know the, the Diamondbacks might want really good prospects, but if you're the White Sox, you're not going to give up Andrew Vaughn, you're not going to give up Nick Madrigal, and you're not going to give up Luis Robert. But I would offer them any other two you want, any other two prospects, go through. And, and remember that pitching injuries, Tommy John, is not necessarily a deal killer these days. Dylan Cease That's was right. coming off Tommy John, right? It's like there are, there are, it just, when a guy has Tommy John, like Dane Dunning, he might still be attractive to them. And in fact, they might think, He's got his Tommy John out of the way. I'll go ahead and grab him now. So any two prospects, and then maybe they would want to turn it around quickly in Arizona. And so they take an Alex Colomay, who has value uh, for next year as a full-year closer, and they could flip if desired. Maybe they have some interest in Lori Garcia, who can play all three outfield spots and shortstop if needed and has had uh, a, a jump offensively. So that's my initial thought is Colome, Lori Garcia, and you pick any two prospects not named Madrigal, uh, Vaughn, uh, or Luis Robert, and we take, the White Sox take Zach Granke and pay 100% of his money. Thoughts? Firstly, I think you're thinking about it exactly right, um, because the Diamondbacks have a front office that I adore, and these guys are creative. They don't necessarily want to rip it down to the studs and do a full rebuild. That's why when they traded Paul Goldschmidt, they got back a couple of big league ready pieces who have already helped them this year. Hmm. Um, 
ownership in Arizona has been a constant problem. And one of the things that they have uh, tried to do is to, well, they viewed Greinke's contract as an albatross, and they've sort of cynically tried to sell it to their fan base as such. I don't think the front office sees it quite that way. So they might prefer to pay down some of the deal in order to get a really premium prospect price. Uh, see, this is the unfortunate part, is that there's no real suckers left at the table. And it's, well, not, it's not like we're talking Dave Stewart Diamondbacks here. Right. The front office is really smart, but the front office also has to work within the parameters of what ownership is sort of telling them, doing to them. And ownership believes that that money is getting in their way. I think they do. And that's why you saw Goldschmidt traded this winter. That's why they sort of treated this year as a reload reset. And they've just sort of surprisingly been better than average because they have a really smart front office that made some savvy moves. So you're thinking about it right. Yes, they would love to bolster a bullpen that has been their Achilles heel for two years now. Yeah. Uh, and they love versatility. So Lurie Garcia is a good fit. Which two prospects is probably where the haggling would come down to. And, you know, I, I think if the White Sox are willing to go up just below the premium tier of their farm system, they've got some pretty good depth, and especially on the pitching side, although, as you said, kind of pockmarked with injuries. Yeah, I think that's a feasible deal. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a likely deal. There's a lot of wild cards there in terms sure. of how the Arizona front office and ownership are each viewing the situation. Um, but it's an interesting idea, and Greinke is a phenomenal pitcher. He's so well-balanced. He's so intelligent. He's going to thrive well into his late 30s, just like John Lester. And it'd actually be really fun to see them both on the opposite ends of town, at least for a year and a half or so. But see, that's interesting, and, that, and that's worth discussing, is what Greinke's future holds. He's 35 years old. Um, but he is a guy who, right now, I think he's 10-4 and four with a 2.87 ERA. It's the first time he's had an ERA below three since 2015, but it's not like he's been bad in Arizona overall. I, I think his ERA is below 3.5, and it's got you know thrown 700 innings, I believe, in Arizona since it got there in 2016. Um, but as you say, my God, is he smart? And he's one of those guys. When you hear people talk about him, he's a guy who can reshape his curveball within a game. Like, he knows his stuff and knows his craft so well that he can adjust his stuff, adjust the, the shape of the breaking stuff within a game to, you know, the kind of levels that very few pitchers have attained. I believe he's going to age well. Sounds like you do, too. Yeah, he has incredible feel, great not just control but command. And, you know, the stuff isn't quite what it once was, but he still knows how to let it eat. He keeps himself in good shape, and uh, he's going to – figure out the right way to attack hitters until he can't throw anymore. Hmm. See, uh, you need an ace. If you are the White Sox, you need an ace. And your options are going to be in free agency to throw a giant pile of money at Garrett Cole um, and trust that his arm and, and stuff will age well. Um, maybe throw some money at Dallas Keuchel. I, I think that his stuff and an arm could, should age better than Cole, but I think the ceiling is lower, my personal thought anyway. Yeah. Or make a trade for somebody like this using your assets. And I, boy, I, I, I know Greinke's an interesting personality. He does have a limited no-trade clause, includes 15 teams to which he cannot be dealt unless he gives his approval. I, I, I could see him enjoying Chicago and enjoying being a little bit on the down low in Chicago in terms of White Sox, not Cubs. I mean, he, he pitched for the Dodgers for a few years, and then when he opted out of that deal, the Dodgers wanted him back and bid pretty high. Now, the Diamondbacks went higher, but it's still, you know, Zach Greinke's a little weird, 
and the White Sox as an organization are a little weird. Like he's he's going to be a fine fit there. It's not he's not a guy who hits free agency and goes, I want to be with the Cubs or the Yankees or the Red Sox and uh-huh. only those teams. That's that's not how he, he ticks. Uh, Six seventy, the score is where you are. I want to credit Ryan McGuffey, um, producer from NBC Sports Chicago and co-host of the White Sox Talk podcast, because I had him in here a few weeks ago. He and Chuck Garfine and. McGuffey's been dreaming of the White Sox getting something at this trade deadline that helps them beyond 2019, of capitalizing on that kind of, this kind of move. And so I find myself dreaming of Granke, but really the guy I dream of for the White Sox is Trevor Bauer. Because I, I think Trevor Bauer is brilliant, and I think he's really weird, and I would like the White Sox to go get Trevor Bauer, take him away from the Indians, which is probably why the Indians won't do it within the division. But then I would like them to hand over the entirety of their pitching brain trust to Trevor Bauer. I'd like to let him be in charge of things um, and, and, and bid Don Cooper adieu. Yeah, except... First, I want to see Don Cooper and Trevor Bauer try to work side by side for a while because <laughs> two personalities that I just don't see being compatible except in a reality TV kind of way. Um, but, yeah, he'd, he'd be a good addition to almost any team from just an on-field perspective. Now, he's, as a personality, not a great fit in clubhouses, not a great fit for your PR staff. Uh, but if you want a guy who's going to come in and attack hitters, understand how the modern game, how the modern craft of pitching works and be really eager and willing to impart it to everyone else in the clubhouse, Uh everyone else who won't run away too fast when he starts talking about it, that's Trevor Bauer all the way. All right, let's discuss that more because I think he's an interesting template for sort of the state of pitching and the state of certain players and not certain other players. And I will say that Bauer and Tim Anderson had a loving Twitter exchange earlier in the year when Tim was having fun and some people were getting on him and Bauer, I forget exactly what it was, but Bauer was supportive, um, which I took to mean that the White Sox are getting him done deal. <laughs> 670, the score is where you are. It's Matt Spiegel here with you on Hit and Run. Top of the hour, we will uh, get back to Cubs and your phone calls and some of the other issues, but let's talk a little bit more of trends around the league and uh, pitching and some of the wisdom that Matthew Trueblood has picked up uh, in press boxes throughout the land these days from baseball prospectus. It's Hit and Run on the score. Keep it right here. You're listening to 670 The Score. I'm your host, Matt Spiegel, here on Hit and Run. Uh, folks really enjoying you, Matthew Trueblood. Uh, I, here, here's one. This guy talking about pitching is the best segment The Score has had in a while. Drew from Providence, originally River Forest. Ask him if he thinks Joe Madden pulls pitchers too early. <laughs> it's a fairly, uh, fairly common refrain and, and has been for a while. Overall, I am um, I'm largely driven crazy by the league-wide trend. I think it's five and a third is the average start around Major League Baseball right now. And I understand why, because unless you have a really good depth of stuff and you're smart, it's difficult to attack a lineup the third time through. I think that is mostly the reasoning. But it just leads to so many domino effect issues when you continue not to trust pitchers like that. And if you don't trust them, then they kind of never learn how to do it. They just kind of are told to go out there, throw everything you have, get it out of the way. We don't care about that third time through, which is uh, so it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way. Yeah, it's it's stealing some of the the variability, the different styles that can work in baseball that we've all treasured for a really long time. Right. Um, And I think that's one of the themes of this last half decade is as teams get better and better information and race to make these changes, there's more and more just sort of sameness, not not only across teams, but across individuals. 
guys are all kind of doing it the same way and decisions are being made the same way. And just as fans, that's not quite as fun. Although, of course, it's efficient. That's why teams are doing it. Yeah, the most efficient way to play and win the game is not necessarily the most entertaining way to watch the game. Yeah. And uh, I think most people agree with that. But, and that's why, that's why even some of, the, you know, so, some of the, the best front office minds are open to crazy rule ideas. That would, that would be dismissed. Like, there are some guys who I really respect who think that the three-pitcher, the three-batter minimum for a relief pitcher is a genuinely good idea. Yeah, one, <laughs> one of those people sitting right across from you. I actually... You like uh, it? I had to be one over on it, and it took a while, because I don't like legislating out strategy. But I traced it back, and, and now I think of it this way. Um, if we were inventing baseball right now, knowing what we know about how pitchers are used in this day and age, as opposed to the 1890s when roster rules were made and guys were throwing nine innings every day and then coming back and the same pitcher was doing nine innings the next day. Yeah. I think we would build in this rule just because mid-inning pitching changes are excruciating yeah. for fans and for, you know, it's not just about engaging the next generation. I, a 30-year-old man who have watched baseball all my life, am kind of tired of seeing, you know, three pitching changes in an inning when... All you're doing is playing matchups. Now, those are actually less common than they were about a decade ago. So some of it was being gotten rid of just cyclically anyway. Um, but I don't have a huge problem with getting rid of that rule, especially because there's the or with adding that rule, especially because there's the provision that if you get to the end of an inning, then then it, uh, all bets are off. Anyway. So you bring in the guy to do his job, and he does his job and ends the inning, then you're okay. If he doesn't do his job, then you have to deal with him against the next guy or two. And I think it would go. It, it, you would end up valuing a different kind of pitcher a little bit more. You'd end up valuing a guy who could attack both sides, obviously. Yeah, that's right. And so I, as a lefty, I'm not trying to get rid of all the loogies in the world. Uh, <laughs> but I do think it's a little better if, again, what you said about, you know, you're just asking starters to go empty the tank and two times through the order. Yeah. They're not learning nuance. They're not developing a third pitch. The same thing is true of if you can just be a guy who comes in for one batter. Um, and I think it's better if guys have to learn to get out opposite-handed batters. Mm-hmm. They've got to learn to, you know, I may have to throw 15 pitches in every outing um, or at least plan for that and be able to hold up and be available the next right. day. Um, some of that is good for the game in a way. You know, it's some of the guys that we do value and we enjoy watching and end up talking about the most are those guys who do have the depth of stuff and the depth of strategy like Granky we're talking about. Or watching Kyle Hendricks is incredibly enjoyable. You're like watching, you're watching a, 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 you know, a pitching wisdom kind of just like in effect, like age-old pitching wisdom of effective velocity or whatever. Like the stuff Warren Spahn used to talk about. Guys are still doing and still using, of course. Or, um, you know, and, and some of these other guys, Lucas Giolito's breakout has been so much fun for me to talk about just because once he found that fastball changeup thing, yep. how he used that as the starting point and then and then took off from there and it spread out from there and it gives him these multiple ways now to go after guys. It's been fascinating. I love that stuff. Yeah, uh, that, those can make for great stories. We just have to. We have to keep encouraging guys to find different or sort of unique paths instead of machining everyone into a fastball slider monster. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mentioned Trevor Bauer. There's an excerpt from the MVP machine, um, that I, the book The MVP Machine, which I read on, on, on your site, on BP, about Bauer 
and the Edgertronic camera. Thomas Edgerton, a hero of my dad's who kind of invented the, the thousand frame camera. You've seen the video of the bullet going through the apple or the droplets of milk. That's Thomas Edgerton. And that's who the Edgertronic is named after, I, I believe. Right. Uh, um, so, but Bauer uh, loves that camera and has been angry anytime the Indians don't use the one that they own on him because he can then they'll put it behind the plate and sometimes like network TV will have a, a camera back there and it'll be like, I'll oh, screw them. It's in the way. Get it out of the way. Like they, yeah. they, they haven't, there's sometimes they're lazy and late to set it up and he rails against them cause he's Trevor Bauer. But the stuff that he learned cause he uses it and the best young pitching minds, pitchers uh, it, it, use it to gain information. He had, the Indians film Marcus Stroman's start when the Blue Jays played at Cleveland. And they only, I think, got an inning, if I'm remembering the story correctly, but it was enough for him to break down Stroman's slider. And we started this hour talking about the slider and look at all these frames and see exactly where the thumb was coming off the slider for Stroman. And Bauer, through this pitch design that you mentioned, figured out a way to affect the slider. And I think his next time out or the second time after all of a sudden he had an 8.4 inch vertical drop on his slider, which was like three inches more than he'd had all season long. And he knew he'd found something success results be damned. He knew that he'd found it and results immediately followed thereafter. So it's a great story and a fascinating window into where the wisdom comes from. Sometimes it's not the pitching coaches anymore. No, that's true. But it's also a story, you know, some of these we end up telling them and sort of hearing them as stories about data, about fancy technology. You know, that's also a story about what an incredible feel for pitching Trevor Bauer has. And that's one of the cool things about these modern training methods from Edgertronic to Rapsodo machines. These things will tell you about the characteristics of your pitches, the moment of your release, it's still only the really great pitchers who have that feel, that ability to, that proprioception as their body's moving through space. Proprioception. Where they're going to be able to feel, all right, how do I make that ball spin off my fingers just a little bit better than I'm seeing in this high-speed camera Hmm. um, shot? And so it still takes a certain kind of baseline talent. And it's really, I love Giolito from this perspective. He was the top pitching prospect coming out of high school. He was going to be number one in the draft until there were medical issues that stopped that from happening, right? And it's taken him all this time to succeed, partially because the game's been moving under his feet. He's had other injury issues along the way. Uh, But essentially, once he was armed with the right information and he made the mental adjustments he needed to make, that talent that scouts saw when he was just a high schooler on a mound in California, it shined through but that was always sort of what was driving the driving force that gave him the high ceiling. And he just had to meet it by making these changes, being open to change and getting a little bit of a good break along the way. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it, it makes all the sense in the world. Um, what, what else is going on around the game trend wise that interests you in our, in our final, final moments here, Matt, you know, one thing that jumps out to me is that this year, the rate at which teams shift against right-handed batters has something like doubled or risen by 60, 70%. And that's a sign that we're still seeing the evolution of defensive positioning. Um, It's one of those things that is a big story 
for analytics nerds. But if we just conceptualize the game a little bit differently, if your TV camera angle didn't just have pitcher and batter featured constantly, and if there weren't so many strikeouts and walks and home runs, we'd notice this and we'd be paying a lot more attention in the first place. Defensive positioning has always been one of the really creative ways for a team to affect its level of success on the field. The Twins, who are in town against the White Sox right now, if you're going out to the park today, watch where Jorge Polanco sets up against right-handed batters. You've never seen a shortstop stand so far into the hole. And it just is, it's part of the Twins sort of hiding a guy whose range is not great at the position. Um, But it's also just a strategy. Teams have realized we haven't always been putting guys in the best possible position to get in the way of balls in play. And as they innovate, this is one of those things where even though it is sort of ruthless efficiency, it's mm. still fun to watch it unfold because you're seeing guys in unusual positions. You're seeing them challenged to make plays they haven't made before. And you're seeing the smartest teams rewarded with the most outs when pitchers are able to pitch to contact. You know, it's part of the, uh, the broader conversation, which we'll have another time about, you know, whether contact guys will end up being more valued. Like a lot of people are writing and hoping that that's the case. Verlander's saying at the All-Star break, he believes it's coming around. Dale Murphy wrote a piece the other day. And and I I love that idea of those guys coming back and being valued. Nick Madrigal as one of the emblems of it. I just don't know if it's true or not. Yeah, well, take the juice out of the ball and we can actually find out. Ah, that's, that's the big thing. There it is. All right, Matt Trueblood, it's been a great fun, man. Thanks for, uh, for being here. M.A. Trueblood on Twitter that's right. is how you find him. You can read him at Baseball Prospectus and uh, subscribe to his newsletter, which is called Penning Bull. Thanks for coming in, Matt. Thank you. You got it. All right, Matt Spiegel here with you on Hit and Run. About another hour and a half left to go and lots of time now for your phone calls and your texts about whatever you want that we just talked about. If you want to talk White Sox trade deadline, cool. And Cubs. A lot of you seem to want the Cubs to pivot to sellers. It's just not that realistic, in my opinion. We'll talk about that, and we'll take your phone calls and your concerns next at 312-644-6767. It's Hit and Run on 670 The Score. Why? Why? If you have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 